1: Welcome to Money Tales. This is Cammie. Our guest today is Barbara Pierce. Among other things, Barbara is an avid lottery player. She and her husband have already achieved the financial success they need to make their dreams come true. So the lottery playing isn't about her. It's about playing against the odds to help enrich others. Barbara's strategy is to buy tickets in areas where the winnings would make a material positive difference to the vendor. And her plans for the jackpot are focused on funding a foundation that would help Barbara give away even more financial resources to the causes she cares most about. This activity is indicative of the purpose-driven person that Barbara is.
2: Hi, I'm Sandy. Barbara is the founder of Women with Capital, a pitch-free learning community for women with wealth who are interested in making social change through investing in philanthropy. Through Women with Capital, she is dedicated to educating, supporting, and inspiring women to invest in alignment with their values and vision. Barbara grew up in a working-class home with a working-class accent and worked really hard to create a different path for herself.
1: At the end of the interview, please stick around for our reflections on the conversation. Now, on to our interview with Barbara Pierce.
2: Barbara Pierce, welcome to Money Tales. We are so glad you're here with us. Oh, I'm
3: excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Would you please share with us the journey of your life so far, focusing on two to three pivotal moments that make you the person who you are right now talking with us?
3: I'll talk about two things that were very pivotal. I grew up working class that we were the first ones, my sister and I, to go to college. My mother and father were the only ones in their generation to graduate from high school. And so I grew up, my dad had a very good job for someone with a high school education. He was a member of a union and this was in South Boston. It was a very powerful union, so he had great benefits. But he worked very hard, and there was a distinct line, to say the least, between union and management. And there was a lot of tension around there, a lot of assumptions, a lot of self-identification. My dad always talked about being a bull worker. And there was a certain mix of pride in it, but that it was very clear in terms of Education levels in Boston. I think that it's different from out here. It's very clear in terms of class that a lot of people want to ignore, that I was very aware of it. And I think that it's a privilege to deny that issue of class. And I'll talk about that a bit more about when I went to college and how that came up. But in terms of money, there was always the threat of my dad going out on strike. And although there was a strike fund, That could go on for months. Money was always an issue in our house. My parents really tried to support what we wanted to do in terms of, like I skated, which is an expensive hobby, and they were very supportive, but I also realized that cost them a lot, that cost them a lot of debt, and that there was always a feeling of being less than in terms of class. I had a very working class accent in Boston. You can often tell which class you're from. And I know that carried over because in high school, I had a great job on a local newspaper. They even put me in charge of one of their publications. And the editor, who was very old money, said to me, Barbara, I'm just amazed you are so smart and you really couldn't tell by your accent. So and like I said, it wasn't, I was just, I had forgotten about it. But that growing up, like I said, that in this world where everyone says they're middle class, I was not. And that's fine. But I always found it very difficult when people try to act like we're all the same with the same access, privileges and assumptions. So that's a big theme. And then when I went to college, I went to Wellesley College, which is fancy, at least how we thought of it growing up. And I think a lot of people would agree it's a beautiful campus, lots of history. And there are a lot of people that go there, even though I think people would bristle at it. It's a fact. A lot of people go there have a lot of money. I got great financial aid in large part because of Wellesley's endowment and the generosity of wealthy donors that have given to that. But it was a really formative experience because coming from the family background that I did in education. It was a big leap. And as I was going off to college, my mom said, how are you going to feel? Like, it's great. You've been accepted. You're smart enough to belong there. But How are you going to feel being surrounded by people with that much money, money that you really have never seen before, by the overseas students and, and the different backgrounds? And it was a really good question. And of course, I said, oh, I'll be fine. There are a lot of very well-meaning people at Wellesley. Like I said, it didn't come from a position of malice or judgment, but that, again, there were a lot of assumptions that were made in terms of what type of vacations we would take. Didn't take really any. I had never been on a plane until I went to college. The type of background that I came from, the type of privileges that I had been afforded or not, Everyone likes to think, and I think this is especially true with women, we're all the same. We're all in this together. We're not. We might be all in this together, but just like they're saying with COVID, same storm, different boat. So when I was at Wellesley, I got great financial aid, but I also worked a lot. And that became a real problem, again, based on assumptions when I went abroad, which was a huge leap in terms of my family that I studied in Spain. And I did not have a job over there, but my financial aid didn't make up for that. So when there was a chance to travel around Europe, which was amazing, I didn't have the type of money. I had $800 for six months to do that type of travel and also not have a place to stay if I couldn't travel. So I was stuck and it was very difficult and stressful. Again, because people don't think about those type of issues because they don't have them. Other people do, but it's not openly discussed. So that was very difficult, but Wellesley, to their credit, I was put on the Board of Trustees Financial Aid Committee, which was amazing that they allowed me to, especially with my outspokenness, and they revisited that, and that's changed now. So Wellesley really changed my life, but it was not an easy journey. In terms of pivotal experiences, my dad did not believe women should be educated. And that if they were, like my sister went to school and she became a nurse, that made more sense. The idea of liberal arts again, I went to a great liberal arts school. A person's parent asked me, When did you know you were going to Wellesley? This is a brilliant man, but when I got the acceptance letter, so I thought, is this a trick question? Whereas his daughter had been raised with the assumption that she would go there. So it was really big experience for our whole family that I went to Wellesley. And it was great when I did graduate, my dad, very uncharacteristically, ran out and gave me a flower as I was in graduation. line. That was very transformative.
1: For everyone, it sounds like.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Barbara, thank you. That was amazing. There's so much to unpack. And I think it's always good to go back to the beginnings. That's where the roots start. You talk about your mom and dad. Your comment was, money was always an issue in our house. Would you share with us what you mean by that? I get it, money was tight, but why is it an issue?
3: There was a lot of talk about going to the poorhouse, belt tightening, And it was always very stressful because we didn't have so much money. So how much were we going to spend in the grocery store? It was more of an awareness of references to the poorhouse, which as a child really (laughs) scares you. We did not have that type of security. And that's why, frankly, financial security is a cornerstone for me and one that I think about a lot more, for example, than my husband who didn't grow up with that, with that idea floating around their house that we might be going to the poorhouse,
2: Did that threat cause you to change your behavior around anything, Barbara?
3: Yes, it was very clear if I wanted to get beyond that and have that type of financial security, I needed to work very hard. I needed to find something that made money. Studying art or art history or something like that seemed very out of the picture in terms of practicality, whereas I did study something that wasn't, just liberal arts in general wasn't practical. But while I was doing that, I was very focused on internships, building up my resume, and thinking about what type of careers where I could be self-sufficient and not be out of work. And I ended up being a major gifts fundraiser. And regardless of the economy, that everyone always wants fundraisers, so:
1: You're super driven. Who's your role model at this point?
3: <laughs> In terms of being driven, and why I found this so attractive, is we had moved from a working-class neighborhood outside of Boston to Cape Cod, and that's back when it was still a bit odd to live there year round. My dad came me to Boston. but that also meant I was surrounded by a lot of old money. And I saw these women) <laughs> I have a couple of mine, smart, thoughtful, engaged in philanthropy, beautiful homes, and they both went to Wellesley. I said, I want that. <laughs> I didn't know that it was money makes money, that it doesn't naturally mean that I was going to. I was very impressed. One woman had two living rooms with colors that were practical peach and moss green. I thought, oh, I would like that. So frankly, those were my role models, but they were so smart and just, they had a life that was so lovely.
2: And tell us what it was like to be on that campus during college, face to face with people who came from a a lot greater means than you did.
3: Yeah. Like I said, that I met so many people were so kind to me and my teachers were so supportive and it was a meritocracy in the classroom in terms of how hard you worked, what you had to contribute. So I was treated as an equal in that way. But socially, first of all, I found a lot of the women had been quite sheltered, according to my own standards. Like I said, that assumption about working class was bothersome. It was a sort of reverse. I had a job working in the student cafeteria, not very glamorous. But two of my friends who had never worked, who had been forbidden to work, and had enough money they took up a job on the sly in the cafeteria and when my parents took us out to like papaginos one time for my birthday they bragged about the type of work they had and it was very sweet but i'm like i would not be washing these dishes if i didn't have to so it was one of those things that i found perplexing and again when you don't have much money having more of it is very attractive. And so to have them, I don't know if the right word is pretend, to do this work, one hour a week, mind you, was just confusing and frankly a bit annoying and sweet at the same time.
1: Were you intimidated by your friends and their experiences and their attitudes?
3: That's interesting. I was brought up with a great deal of confidence in terms of being able to stand up for myself, for my family, for, like I said, being smart, working hard. So no, I wasn't. And frankly, I think because I was, I don't know if it's a bit defensive or just my natural personality, a bit, I come on very strong. I was the head of the op-ed page for the newspaper. Is people later on told me they were a bit intimidated. I was aware of it but no, not so much. I was also raised with the the idea, you know, people put on their pants the same way. And to this day, I'm not intimidated so much by wealth, because I do believe at the core of that, that the people, we all have our struggles. So no, it wasn't so much intimidating, but it was the assumptions, really, as you can tell, bothered me. When was I going to Europe? Like, well, when you're going to pay for it? I don't know. It's not an issue (laughs) of making a decision, like not taking into consideration these costs.
2: So the practicality of it. I I found a number of the women lacking in practicality. And Barbara, what happened to your accent in college? Did you keep it? Well, it was interesting since Wellesley's outside of Boston
3: that me and another woman from Worcester were from a similar background. And we got teased a lot, which I thought was very odd since it was, people coming from all around the world. And I don't even know if they recognize, a lot of people recognize, the professors did because they've been living there, but that they didn't recognize it as a working class accent. I did lose it when I went to graduate school in Austin, Texas, and I did lose it there because frankly, it was a little scary.
1: Say more about that. Yeah, say more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Eyebrows are up.
3: It's actually not because the working class part of it. It's because, say, I traveled around from the admissions office while I was working on my thesis and to these small towns. And the first question was, where are you all from? I was like, uh. Like I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> when I say I was from Boston. So it's just more of blending in. That's what I mean.
2: So tell us about what happened after school.
3: I went to graduate school. And it was fantastic. I got a wonderful fellowship because a Wellesley professor, who is a Chilean human rights activist and poet, and she had supported me in that application. And so I did. I went on to study something very impractical, but applicable. I wanted to become a professor because people had supported me to such an amazing extent. So I studied Latin American studies and I loved living in Austin. This was. Back in the day in the 90s. So it's quite different. But it really, to be in a community of scholars, that was intimidating at that level and wonderful at the same time. And then at the end of it, back to being practical, the Cold War ended. No one really cared so much about Latin America at that point. And I realized that the fight for a professorship, talk about financial security, was so intense. And when I found out that someone was battling for a job, I think in East Texas, for $19,000 a year, I thought, okay, <laughs> came over. And that to finish my PhD, I would have had to stay another five years. And so at that point, I used my Wellesley network, which was also a huge benefit of going to such a school. And luckily, I knew that at 17. So I tapped into that network, and someone at the University of San Francisco brought me out and trained me to be a major gifts officer. And I did that as a fundraiser, staff fundraiser, and also a consultant for almost 25 years. I really loved it.
1: So you really have been talking about money for a long while.
3: I have, yes, exactly. And I think people responded well because I really, you know, major gifts fundraising is about developing relationships and that I did see them more for who they are rather than what they had. While still asking <laughs> for some of that for gifts, but that it was really matchmaking and, and seeing whether this would really be mutually beneficial for them as philanthropists as well as for the institutions that I represented.
2: What was happening on your interior while you were beginning this work as a fundraiser? Just giving your background, given your own ambition.
3: Well, it was odd because I didn't have the ability to make gifts like the people that I was talking with and so it was more almost anthropological and that also growing up like I said it's a different not better but also not worse when you have wealth and so it was just it was fascinating to me and people also were very kind in terms of sharing some of those opportunities with me you know I came as a single woman to San Francisco and one of the board members Mary Thatcher, she's had a great influence on me and she's passed, would offer me her seats at the symphony or at the opera, things like that, that I would not have access to and and have us up to her home in Napa. And so that was wonderful to have those experiences. So interior, yeah, I think also that talking about the powerful ways that you can use your wealth was really gratifying and why I stayed with fundraising.
2: And I'm curious, Barbara, just getting back to some of the comments you made about growing up and being very acutely aware of your class and where you sort of fell on the hierarchy of society, always feeling different. Did you feel that way when you first got started in the fundraising
3: world? No, because frankly, and I know I reference it a lot, is when people hear that I went to Wellesley, and because I worked for an educational institution, that was often you know where did you go to school what type of education do you have that gave me even though that my class hadn't really changed in terms of the education that i had received that was a nice marker for me of not feeling left out a lot of the people that i talked with went to similar schools and that made things a lot easier
1: when you're having these conversations barbara Were they sometimes opening up to you in a way that they hadn't opened up to themselves, to their significant other, when talking about money?
3: I'm finding that a lot in what I'm doing these days is I am very aware and frankly, extremely honored that they do open up to me in that way, because it is often uncomfortable, it's fraught, it's full of judgment. And I believe when I do talk with people, like I said, I don't believe people are better or worse for being rich or poor, Whereas I feel like there is a lot of judgment. If you have money, there are a lot of assumptions that you got through nefarious means, that you're morally corrupt, that you're doing horrible things with it. So I think that put people at ease, that it really, in terms of surprises, eye-opening, is that people are ashamed about it. And back to that issue, especially women want to be one of the group. They want to be like everyone else. But it is different when you have wealth. You have different things that you're dealing with, different concerns and different choices and opportunities. So that's what I found interesting, powerful, but the biggest surprise was they did not see that as powerful. They saw that oftentimes as negative and something to be hidden and ashamed about. That's a shame. A lot of them inherited money. Even if they made it, they felt like they weren't deserving of it and that they should keep it hidden. And my basic belief is that doesn't serve them or anyone else, which is why I'm, I'm on this mission to talk about women with wealth, make them feel more comfortable and see it as something positive versus a hindrance.
2: And tell us, Barbara, how did you transition out of philanthropy into what you're doing today? And can you tell us more about what you're up to?
3: Sure. So I worked with incredible female philanthropists, male and female, but a number of them really stuck out. I worked with uh, Mills College for a number of years. And so I was meeting these women who were making six, seven-figure gifts. but They were very smart, savvy, strategic, but they weren't involved in the huge pool of wealth that fed their philanthropy, that oftentimes their husband, father, whatever other male family members were in control of it. They had been put in charge, and it was seen as a real privilege And it is, to be in charge of their philanthropy, but not in the rest of their finances. And I thought, huh, that's leaving a lot of power on the table. And why is it that these smart, savvy, strategic women are not looking at this? They are completely capable of it. But I think so much of the language around investing is a barrier. Intended or not, it seems like a different language, inaccessible. And I thought, hmm, I think they could do a lot in terms of if they could see and be involved with all of their finances, that made a real impression on me. That's why I'm so excited about impact investing and it more so aligning in terms of how you think about money in general, in terms of from a psychological point of view, how you show up and have a seat at the table, including talking with your advisors, what you can do with your money in terms of impact, and aligning it with your philanthropy. So the whole spectrum is, I think, something that women with wealth, feeling equipped, feeling confident, and most of all feeling supported, which is why I do this in a group, is unlocks a lot of very powerful resources. I work with socially progressive women, and so on the behalf of people with less, I think that They're great allies when they feel equipped with the tools and ideas and support to carry out their big vision. So that's why I created Win With Capital, which is what I'm doing now.
1: That's so great. Barbara, you talked about the philanthropists before. It's how, unfortunately, sometimes they lacked, they felt guilty. They felt that they didn't have the power or control. It sounds like you're working on helping your clients feel confident how are you doing that? You touched on it, but can you bring it to life? Because I think it's really important.
3: Thank you. So I started a group called Women with Capital, the name of the business. And I am reaching out to socially progressive women with wealth. And I see that as my part of developing the ecosystem of women who want to see change in the world and may have been isolated. Oftentimes I feel, this is my hypothesis, when you're socially progressive, that you can feel ashamed of your wealth, be hidden, and you can become isolated. I wanted to reach out to these women, give them a place where they can openly talk about having wealth, at least show them that their are opportunities, not just hindrances and things that they are a burden with trying to sort out and that they don't have to do it on their own. And that they can see themselves as having an important role in contribution to basically lifting up, like I said, people with less than we have. Low-income women, for example, is a passion of mine. A lot of the women that I work with. And when I say work, it's a real learning community. And so I bring in instructors on all the different topics that I mentioned before starting with the psychology of wealth, and then really on an ongoing basis, connect them with others. Some of them are co-investing, but really encourage each other in terms of what they want to do in this world and use that wealth as a tool, not as something that they have to hide.
2: Now that you've been running several cohorts, Women with Capital, As you reflect upon your experience, what was most surprising to you that you've learned along the way?
3: The biggest surprise was that it wasn't just about education. My theme has been about being practical and being specific and concrete is, yes, that's important, but that it would all fall apart without looking at the psychology behind it. Just like what you're doing in terms of looking at your money story. So then I sought out Marlise Jansen, who I know has been a guest on your program and is incredible and wise. And fortunately, she agreed to be the instructor. We kick off this educational series with the psychology of wealth. And I've been amazed, impressed and humbled by how open these women who haven't necessarily talked about these topics around wealth before open up to talking with others about it, and really exploring that deeply themselves, and that it's become a real community. That's other surprise, as extremely gratifying uh, that people are looking for connection, looking for a place where their worth, their likability it has nothing to do with how much money they have. It's an equalizer in that way. There are great connections.
1: I sometimes wonder if community, this attraction to community, it's so reinforcing that I wasn't just thinking this myself. I wasn't just feeling this myself, right? It's, oh, this is common. I'm not weird, crazy, whatever the descriptor is. And it feels really good. And then you lean in. It helps you lean in.
3: Especially around topics that you aren't talking about necessarily even with your family. So I've been uh, really honored by how open they are. Everyone wants to be accepted. And I found this group extremely accepting.
2: That's wonderful, congratulations on that, Barbara. Let's go back to you. Tell us about money in your home today. What's your family life like, and how what role does money play in it?
3: so I'll offer this up because some people ask me, some people don't, is I do not have wealth based on my fundraising career, that I uh, married a nerd who was in the right place at the right time and is wonderful, a computer scientist, and that being in Silicon Valley, made wealth. And so in terms of our life, in terms of how money plays a role in it now, is that after a number of years going through the dot-com bust, going through 2008, that my husband became sort of burnt out in terms of looking, we manage our own money, looking at investments. And I was becoming more and more interested at one point he said, okay, well, you're more interested in it. Why don't you take the lead? As I told him last night, we were talking about it, is it's not because he wasn't doing a good job. He just wasn't as interested. But I told him, I said, it was one of the greatest honors in my life to go from having no understanding of money, so much fear around it, avoidance, lack thereof, to being able to manage our portfolio. And he's been extremely encouraging. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from my now late father-in-law. And yeah, it was a great learning journey. It was stressful because I didn't have other people to talk to about it, which is a big part of why I started moving with Capital also. We talk about it a lot. We talk about it openly. I actually find looking at investing a little bit soothing and that it's objective. It doesn't always feel that way, as you know, when it blows up, but I've been doing it for long enough that that's part of it. We uh, take a lot of risk and are fairly on the same page about that. And so my son has also taken an interest in it because that's something that we talk about. I think it's a unique lens to look at the world through and yeah, that I think that we're very fortunate to be pretty much as much as you can on the same page in terms of spending, maybe that's a little different, investing and the role it plays and which role it shouldn't play in our lives.
1: Barbara, would you go a little deeper with that? You mentioned that you've got some investing commonalities with your husband. You take on a little bit more risk. What about beyond investing? How have you talked about how you handle money? how you save, how you spend? Did you talk about your values? How did you approach this with your husband?
3: Well, I think part of why we ended up together is we do have similar values around money, that it is a tool, that it doesn't make us better, as I've said. Frankly, it's pretty wonderful and that we're very aware of how many choices it gives us. But at the same time, (laughs) this is the vulnerable part. We both have very specific ideas in our heads that are not grounded in reality about how much things should cost. So for a long time, I thought, <laughs> it's embarrassing. This is about 10 or 15 years ago that no hotel room should cost more than $100. Because <laughs> you're just spending the night there on bed. So I went along with that. He was a little, little not as convinced, and rented a place in Venice, California for $100. But we couldn't stay there because it smelled so bad. Lesson learned. So we had to double down on the amount of money we spent because we then had to you know, rent another <laughs> hotel room. So that's lesson learned. But no, we have specific ideas about how, and it's not necessarily the same decade as we're living, about how much cars should cost or you know things like that. But in terms of spending, that is slightly different too. That I buy, I've been told a lot of Kindle books. I think that's okay. And that's important to me. It's sort of where money should be spent. What's worth it. That's it. What has value. I think we're fairly similar on that page. But yes, we can both be
1: maybe a little too tight. I think you're in our conversation, my husband and mine, because we talk about that. My husband just said, when did hotel rooms stop being $100?
2: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, I've got one for him. (laughs) The money stress that you experienced as a child, does that show up today in your relationship with money in any of the conversations you're having with your husband and or your son? No,
3: it definitely does. The fact that thinking, oh, I could lose it all at once. I'm very aware. And he doesn't have this experience of what it would be like to all of a sudden not have money, to not be able to afford medical insurance, for example. I think about it a lot and just how it could have been and that how fortunate I am, how extremely fortunate I am. And I do think about that every day. I live in a beautiful house and I can see the city, I can see Tiburon, and every night before I go to sleep, I look out, and this is my dream. So I guess it's the flip side of that. There is the scarcity thinking that definitely pops up. I've had moments of panic, but overall, yeah, I'm very aware of just how lucky I am. It's
2: beautiful. And Barbara, as you look into your future... What's something that you haven't done yet that you'd like to do? It's a very
3: interesting question. I can't do everything, but I can do an awful lot within my sphere of what I want to do. And so that was hard. It's like, well, what do I want to do? And why aren't I doing it now? It's more of a question for me. For example, this surprises people and won't go along with your money wisdom
2: theme, but
3: I play the lottery. And
2: people think it's crazy. No, this is fascinating. Say more. (laughs) How often do you play?
1: I love it. And why? Why?
3: So I play, I have a lot around this, as you said, Cammy, to unpack, but I like to buy it in neighborhoods that the owner of the shop would be so thrilled because they get a cut of it when I win. And the reason why I play it is, first of all, tell my son who thinks it's crazy too. I'm like, look, you know, you can't win if you don't play. But more seriously, I love to fantasize about having a huge foundation that I would love to do. My life has been involved in philanthropy. And in terms of joy, being on the other side and being a donor is an incredible feeling. Not that I didn't give before, but being able to give more is fantastic. That is why I play the lottery. I don't check right away. I like to think that I I won. And what I'd be doing, who would be on my board of directors. Now, to your point about what I'm not doing and uh, would like to in the future is I can do. I do give. I belong to the Women Donors Network, which I'm thrilled to be a part of. I was part of a giving circle. So I am doing that, not at the scale that I would like to, But for the most part, I am doing, I live on the water, which was my dream. I row. I have a rowing shell off the dock that we have. I have a healthy, wonderful family. I have a 12-year-old and my husband. I'm able to support my mother. And yeah, I have a very good life. So I would want to do more of it to a greater scale. I'd like to travel more. Like say All these things I can do. And it's a matter of picking and choosing, which was a Zen quote uh, that I have on my door. It, the, the way is not difficult. It's the picking and the choosing. That's my paraphrasing. So,
2: I love that. I have a question about your lottery winning fantasies. <laughs> have you named your foundation? No, that would be my brain
3: trust that would help me do that. I would involve the community. Yeah, so it would be my friends. And people I respect. And that yes, we could name it together, but thank you for
2: asking.
1: (laughs) I love it. I think it's great. It's so aligned with everything you've talked about. Anyway, I think it's a lot of fun.
2: I hope you win.
1: I hope you win big. I, I do too. And I can't wait to watch what you do with all your great work with the foundation. Yes, thank you. Barbara, what's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners that you haven't yet shared?
3: I think it might not be as succinct as you're looking for, but to really not push away money. That I found, and that surprised me, is you push it away, you ascribe your own judgment to it, that you stick it in your mattress, which a lot of women do, you know, proverbially, that you don't use it, that you have to remember that you have control over this. And as one of my instructors, the one on impact investing Often says is your money is having an impact, better or worse, regardless of whether you do something with it or not. I think that's it to just be really aware of money as a tool. And it doesn't benefit yourself or anyone else by hiding it.
1: One of our recent podcast guests, his grandfather said, money is like manure. If it sits in a pile, it stinks. Spread it around, it grows.
2: Nice. I like that. I like that a lot. Barbara, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with?
3: I'm going to be having it with Women With Capital and then also my own family that we're doing a special session because there was such a need and demand on talking with your children about wealth and inheritance. Basically, when you're at the point of having more than enough, what do you do with that? How much is enough? How much is too much to pass along to your children? And then, of course, that goes along with in your life, what do you want to do with what you have? How much do you want to give away? And really, what is the meaning of having money and really passing on those values, especially because my son's too young, he's 12, but a number of the women with capital members have adult children, at 18 to 25, and they're coming into money, whether they want it or not. And what do you do with that? And the next generation of funny sort of often pushes it away. There is a lot of judgment, tax the rich, eat the rich, you know, I don't want to be that person. So we're going to have a great conversation about that. And that uh, within my own family, start to be thinking about that as we all are, you know, growing, growing up, raising him in a very affluent community, some perspective around that. And, what that looks like and the responsibilities that go along with that, especially as an only child.
2: Sounds like a great conversation. We wish you luck with both versions, the women with capital version and the personal family version of the conversation. Thank you. This <laughs> has been a fantastic conversation, Barbara. I think it's so amazing to learned about the roots of your life and all that you've accomplished in it and what you're doing to help other people, women in particular, Feel empowered and knowledgeable around money, so thank you for all of your hard work, and thank you for this conversation.:
3: Thank you. It's been great, and thank you for putting out the message about talking about money and the value of that.
1: Thank you.: Sandy, the conversation with Barbara, she started with saying something that was so important that really underlined who she is. She has a mission to talk about money. And that really was clear in our whole conversation, no matter what we were talking about. So, as you left this conversation, what's one or two things you'd like to highlight to listeners that you really thought are important ideas?
2: Well, first, Cammie, I was blown away by the stories that Barbara was telling about her growing up situation. Someone who came from such modest means with a family who worked really hard and a father who wasn't big on women being educated, for her to have grown up in that household and to have sought a different path forward for herself, I think is incredible. I really enjoyed hearing about her journey to Wesley and about how she was able to thrive there and really stay focused to really know who she was as a person. I really loved all those stories and I thought there was some really good messages in there for all of us. Just because we're born into a certain situation doesn't mean we need to hang out there our whole lives. We have choices to make. And if we have drive and determination, we can make sure we get to where we want to be over time. So that's one. And then I'll also say Another aspect of the conversation with Barbara that I really liked was the gratitude that she shared that she has about her own wealth and the financial situation that she's in today. I thought it was cool how she mentioned that every day she wakes up and she's appreciative for where she is in the world and what her life looks like. And I think that's beautiful, and I think it's a good reminder for all of us to have gratitude for what we have. And it may not be all that we want at this moment. We might be trying to pursue other things, but having gratitude and realizing all of our blessings, I think, is is super important, especially when it comes to money.
1: It's really hard, right? You you want to be grateful, and then something in us innately to drive for more. But you want that balance. It's great to have goals and push. But you should be grateful for what you have. And I agree with you. I loved it. She brought that up. The thing that really stuck out to me was, and maybe she had a special perspective on this. She spent her life, her working life in philanthropy and fundraising. So she's talking to wealthy people. And she talked about how the women in particular, but maybe it's all, felt uncomfortable about their wealth. And they felt that they were judged and maybe they were morally corrupt because they got this wealth somehow. And I thought that was unfortunate that people have those feelings. And I bet Barbara was really good at helping them understand this gift, this gratitude that it was however you made it, and it could be inherited or made but that you don't have to feel guilty and there's opportunities to do a lot with it and to enjoy it. And I really appreciate that. And I, I love that in money tales, we've heard that a few times from some of our guests and I like that it's part of our conversation we're having. It's one of the themes, the more we talk about it, I'd like to take that guilt away and empower people to feel good and do more with whatever wealth they've attained.
2: I agree, Cami. And to get back to the point of gratitude, I think that can be a way forward for folks who are really struggling because it's real. Having shame and discomfort around wealth and also the lack of wealth works both ways, regardless of what your money situation is, having strong emotions around it is not uncommon. And I do think that having gratitude, being able to sort of see through your thoughts and emotions and figure out What is it that you should be thankful for is a nice way to move forward. But some of these feelings can be really intense. And I'm so pleased that there are therapists and coaches and folks available in the world to help people who are really struggling emotionally with money. I'll just say for our listeners, if you happen to be in that situation of struggling, please reach out to us. We know a lot of great people who we can refer you to and help you work through this. You don't have to go at this alone. In fact, it can really be helpful to have a thought partner and someone who can help you through your feelings and help you achieve a different perspective.
1: Thanks for bringing that up. And once again, Sandy, it's been great. Barbara Pierce, you were a fabulous guest and thank you for joining us on Money Tales. Sandy just mentioned if listeners want to reach us, please email us at podcasts at Asperient.com.
2: We love hearing from you. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Cammy, for having another great Money Tales conversation.
0: Thank you, Sandy. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.